Before we start, a couple of things that have happened since we released our episode on McCluskey a few weeks back. Firstly, I asked about a lyric we discussed on the show on Twitter. McCluskey's own Andrew Falcus replied, clearing up my question about the song She Will Only Bring You Happiness. Was it Note to Self, Be a Wreck by Half Past Ten, or Be Erect? Falco, or Shit Rock, as he styles himself on Twitter, that's shit underscore rock, assured me that it was erect, but not in any bizarre forward planning for the sexually dysfunctional sense, but simply stood up, as in out of bed. So there you have it. Also, McCluskey's manager joined our Facebook group with a bunch of background, which I'd love to share here, but there's way too much good stuff to cram into my intro. So I'll just say that if you want more McCluskey, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash temp fans or search temporary fandoms, which is, of course, where this whole podcast started. That group has been listening to entire discographies for over five years, and this here podcast exists in part as a way to make sure that all that great content isn't lost. You can find the show in all the places you look for podcasts or at our website, which is tempfans.com. The show notes also include links to a Spotify version of the show where you can listen to the chat with actual tunes. Make sure you use that link, though, because the playlist is a bugger to find via Spotify itself. But I've said way too much about McCluskey in the intro to a completely different artist, one with a particularly interesting discography to which we'll be dedicating three whole episodes. But on today's show, we'll be listening to and talking about the records she recorded before she even released her debut solo album as we anticipate Björk via the singular Icelandic indie pop stars, The Sugar Cubes. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Um, again, I have no idea what episode number this is. Also, we've started recording them in different orders and they come out at different times. Anyway, I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. There was a bit of a pause. I think he forgot we were going to say that one, but we're good, we're good, we're good. Um, so this season, the way we decided to approach these seasons is to basically treat it like a music festival as a lineup. Um, so have like a big headliner, uh, a legacy act, um, some more obscure stuff that you might discover in the middle of the afternoon. Um, so already, as we're recording this, we've done McCluskey, we've done uh, Future of the Left, we've done Neutral Milk Hotel, and now we're taking a hard left or a hard right, and we're going to do something different, um, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, thank you to everybody who's left a review. Uh, that's been really good. Also, it's been, it was suddenly great today to discover that the ex-manager of McCluskey, listened to the podcast, found us, and joined the Facebook group and made comments and gave us extra information, which was pretty sweet, actually. Yeah. Also, we were recommended on an algorithm. Algorithm! Yay! Absolutely. <laughs> How did we that exist? happen? I have no idea, because I'm really terrible with sort of SEO stuff and, and tagging things. I, I sort of half-ass it most of the time. Um, anyway, joining us, we got, we got two people new to the pod today, but not new to podcasting. Um, and the Venn diagram that is our pod is looking pretty interesting because from the Philip Larkin podcast, tiny in all that air, we've got Lynn Lockwood. Hello, Lynn. Uh, hiya. Thank you for having welcome. me. You are Sorry. more than welcome. <laughs> uh, we've also got from Dance and Architecture and Beat, that Beat Rehab co-buddy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, something like that. <laughs> Liam Maloney. Hey, Liam, welcome. Hiya, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm bricking this. <laughs> it's far more professional than I'm used to. You have a pod. Well, uh, wait, 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 our podcast is more. Prof- uh, shit, we should really try and get some money for this stuff. Oh yeah, um, there's a Patreon. Join the Patreon. Uh, help cover our costs. All of yeah. that stuff. So far, um, it's just my sister. I think. 
It is just your sister. Uh, my <laughs> wife did suggest that she does it, and I was like, but we've got a joint bank account, so that would just be me paying for my own Patreon, so I'm not, I'm not sure that would work. Yeah, she figured that out beforehand, Ewan. <laughs> um, so, um, as you know, uh, one person generally curates, and I also hate the word curation, but we're sticking with it till we find a better one. And today, and for the next few episodes, that will be Liam Maloney. Liam, who are we doing over the next few episodes? Oh. Um, I was uh, I was listening to a few old recordings of kind of DJ sets they'd done, and uh, the word iconoclasts kept getting batted around quite a lot, and I think that's probably the best descriptive of them. It was of course the like of course, apparently, of course the incomparable Bjork, Bjork, Bjork. However, we're gonna bastardize it in English. I imagine we'll pronounce it in every single way possible over the next mm. few episodes. Um, and so we're going to do Björk, Björk, and some of her earlier stuff. I mean, arguably the biggest thing to come out of Iceland, apart from maybe the ash cloud, um, <laughs> so, and that had, has had a big impact on music. Um, but today we're not going straight into the Björk, Björk. I'm just going to say Björk, it's easier for me. We're not going straight into the Björk that everybody knows now. Where are we starting today, Liam? Um, we're going to ro- rewind back right to the start and kind of at least mention something that maybe is worth flagging up as uh, a, a point to orientate around, and then we're going to go from there, really, and explore what she did with people like Sugar Cubes, and then the bit of work that she did before she kind of becomes Bjork, as we know Bjork. But the place we have to kind of kick off is all the way back in 1977, when I think she is 10 or 11 years old. Um, with her official first solo album. Well, this may oh. be the only, the first and last time we we have a ten year old artist uh, performing. Unless unless we do one about musical youth or first or record I ever bought you. was musical youth. Musical youth. Still. Our mine was our mine was Sly Fox. Let's go all the way, Liam. Oh God, I've got, I've, I couldn't even tell yeah, you. We haven't rehearsed this, obviously. No, no. No, <laughs> no I was going to suggest um, it wasn't Little Stevie Wonder quite young. When he was. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was, mm. he was. Okay, so what, join us next season for the Donny Osmond, Young Michael Jackson, <laughs> Stevie Wonder, Musical Youth, and Baby Bjork episode. Um, we're going to get cracking. Um, and we've already had people tell us as we're putting this together, there was other stuff that Bjork was involved in and the Sugar Cubes were involved in, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to start somewhere and we have to end somewhere. Otherwise, we are going on forever, ever. Uh, and talking about all, all, God, don't, don't. I still have recurring nightmares. I wake up in sweats about that. That is going to happen again in season five. Um, anyway, I've been talking for way too long. You're going to hear Liam in a bit talking through the album that we're not counting, plus the album <laughs> she did with someone else, and the album that's a bit of a curio. And we'll be back after this. You've read the title for the podcast, you know we're doing Bjork. It's not surprising, so I'm not going to bury the lead here. I am going to make this a little bit personal for the intro bit, but I will keep it as quick as possible, because frankly, you don't know me from Adam. Suffice to say that before I was a Bjork fan, I was not a Bjork fan. I was almost actively anti-Bjork. I found her weird, I found her try-hard, and frankly, just not very cool. However, my definition of cool around that time was, well, not very cool. And I was far more concerned with the likes of Blur and Skunk and Nancy, 
and, I don't know, respectable if not slightly forgotten dance music like Kevin Fisher, Sasha, and frankly anything that was the accepted norm among my peer group at that time. In my early teens, I had very little exposure to what you generally term alternative music. Bar those few exceptions I just mentioned, it was catching bits of MTV2, some late night Radio 1, maybe occasional bits of John Peel, which I found baffling and delightful in equal measure, and snatches of whatever the older kids were listening to at school. That was about as deep as I ever got. But then, in very quick succession, I was assaulted by three bits of Bjork. I mean, her musical output, anyway. Firstly, the video for It's Oh So Quiet was undergoing something of a renaissance on the handful of music channels that we had at my house. There was this screaming big band jazz effort that was as intriguing to an impressionable teen as sex, drugs and techno was. I wasn't really into rock and roll. Secondly, the burgeoning P2P file-sharing community was building a serious head of steam by this point, before the Pirate Bay and LimeWire and Kazaa and all of those things that gave your computer chlamydia was the gorgeous original originator Napster. As well as somewhere to infect your PC with viruses, you could also download music on Napster. I don't know if you knew that. And even more excitingly, you could download really low-quality DJ mixes. In a raft of these quite poor quality remixes that I downloaded, I managed to grab Bjork's 1998 Radio 1 Breeze Block set, hosted by the indomitable Marianne Hobbs. Also quiet had grabbed my attention, but this DJ set absolutely blew my tiny little mind to shreds. It jumped from stuff like Black Dog to Nico to Aphex Twin to the Jackson 5 to Bollywood covers of I Will Always Love You to Public Enemy. It was this kind of mad eclecticism that was almost too much for me to kind of cope with. I hadn't realised that genre and music was that porous or that kind of flexible before. And this DJ mix is still one of the things that I put my love of music down to, to this very day. The final straw was when I grabbed a wildly illegal bootleg Russian compilation of her first few albums that contained stuff like, that sounded like James Bond themes, and then had things in odd parentheses like non-toilet mix. And at that moment, that's where it jumped from being an intriguing relationship to an obsessive relationship. But before we can dive into the content of that bootleg and dive into Bjork Mill generally, we need to wind the clock all the way back. If we're being pedantic, the very first Bjork album is released in 1977 when she is 11 years old. The album, just called Björk, self-titled, is a whopping 13 years away from the next time that her name appears as the main artist on a record, which is Glinglow. The record itself, while, you know, certainly diverting for a few moments, is at best a novelty. It's pretty widely accepted that, although this is something that Björk did and maybe represents an early foray into recording music for her, 
it's not actually a proper Bjork album. You know, if, if we're talking canon, it's only the deepest, darkest goblins at the bottom of Bjork's discographical well that really count this as noteworthy. Actually, you know what? Let's go full deep humble brag here. I recorded my first little white label at 11. It sold 12 whole copies, and even I wouldn't call that part of my discography. So certainly something that Bjork released back in 1977 that sold fairly poorly, it just, it doesn't count. So yeah, the self-titled debut album, although that isn't anything to do with debut and it's not really the first album, that's why we're not going to talk about it. And, you know, just to rub some salt into the wound, it's not really released on any streaming platforms either, and probably with good reason. After the 1977 album and several years swirling around the avant-garde pop and rock scene in Reykjavik, Bjork falls into the orbit of a group of musicians from numerous bands like Kukul and Bad Taste and Perko Pilnik and others I can't pronounce who quickly kind of coalesce into the Sugar Cubes. Several members of the band even went as far as to say that the whole point of the group was to just make some money. And with that less than laudable goal, the Sugar Cubes launched themselves into the ocean of post punk alt pop with their debut record, not but not Bjork's debut, it's different, called Life's Too Good, recorded and released in 1988. So Life's Too Good, you get moments of post-punk and experimentation that feels easily understandable to say anyone who's like heard The, the Cure or Susie and the Banshees, um, but there are other moments that feel really kind of, well, frankly quite odd and frankly less successful. Uh, in the case of Life's Too Good, maybe you could use the word varied and inconsistent a bit interchangeably. There's some really beautiful moments like Birthday, you know, this kind of big euphoric number, which I'm sure we'll get into. There's funky kind of groovy things like Blue Eyed Pop and frankly just a really bloody good post-punk like Deus. Deus is like the first time you properly hear how Bjork's voice is going to end up sounding like in the middle of her solo career. Uh, but there's other things in there like Traitor and Sick for Toys that are either weak or just kind of make no sense in context. And when stuff goes wrong, it's usually because of the nonsensical gibbering of Einar Orn. <laughs> 